the Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is guitarist Jennifer Batten. First of all, we all know about payola, at least on the radio, but did you know that there's a form of payola for streaming as well? Well, you might think I'm talking about paying to get on a playlist, but actually there's more going on than you might think. If you looked at Spotify lately, they have something called Discovery Mode. And what that does is it enables labels and artists to improve the frequency of their tracks appearing either via autoplay or Spotify radio, but they have to accept a reduced royalty rate for any related plays. So basically, they're going to push that to the forefront, but guess what? It's going to cost you. usually does, but this is in a decreased royalty rate. Well, Impala, which represents Europe's largest indie record labels, has basically come out against this, as you would expect. And they call this privileged treatment in algorithms or other features. So they're way, way, way against this, as you might imagine. And so should everybody else be, because this is a very serious precedent that will start things going downhill. Already everyone's complaining there's not enough being paid out in terms of a per stream rate. And as I talked about last week, that all varies and there's so much that goes into it. But that being said, you don't want any reason for any of the streaming networks to pay you even less. So let's hope that this makes some headway here because this is a bad precedent that's actually being set. So this is not officially payola in the traditional sense that we know it. But really, when it comes right down to it, it's the same thing. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my music mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now, there may be a new generation of supercharged hard drives coming online soon. Why is this important? Well, right now everybody's switching to solid-state drives, and with good reason. They're really fast. They're really easy to use. Nothing to go wrong with them. Well, that's not exactly true. Over time, they do wear out, but it takes a long time for that to happen. The only problem is they're not huge. So you can get a couple terabytes, four terabytes. If you really push it, eight terabytes, but you're spending a lot of money. So for backup, they don't make a lot of sense. Regular magnetic disk hard drives are still best for backup. However, they top out at about 18 terabytes. So what that means is in order to get 18 terabytes, there has to be nine magnetic platters within the case. That's an awful lot of magnetic platters and it's an awful lot to go wrong. So how do we get more space for a larger drive? Well, one way is we can shrink the right head, but what ends up happening is the tracks get really small and it gets harder to generate a magnetic field. So then what happens, some of the bits randomly flip their polarity. That's not really good for long-term storage. But there's a new technology that's coming out. It's microwave and heat-assisted magnetic recording, or MAMR and HAMR. This allows you to pack a lot more data in, and we're starting to see these drives seep out already 
at 20 terabytes coming from both Seagate and Western Digital, but they're thinking they're going to get up to about 60 terabytes pretty soon. What's even better, they're going to have about double the read and write speed than they have right now. So this is a pretty fantastic thing because, again, what we all use for long-term backup, or at least right now, if you're not using tape, which unless you have a big facility, you're probably not, you're using some sort of hard drive. And the bigger the drive means the fewer the drives we need. So let's hope that this takes off and gives us what we need. My guest this week is Jennifer Batten, who played lead and rhythm guitar on Michael Jackson's Bad, Dangerous, and History World Tours. She's also appeared on two Jeff Beck albums and was a member of his touring band for three years. Jennifer continues to give clinics and master classes all over the world, and most recently created the Guitar Cloud Symposium, an online guitar workshop that features contributions from her favorite guitar players. During the interview, we spoke about her audition with Michael Jackson, playing the Super Bowl, playing with their hero Jeff Beck, developing guitar synth techniques, some insider tips about tapping, and much more. I spoke with Jennifer via Zoom from her home in Oregon. Give me some background of when you first started and, you know, when you first started to play and and how everything proceeded from there. Well, I I started playing when I was eight years old and my motivation was twofold. Um, Seeing the Beatles on TV, you know, my my little town in upstate New York, every single person was into the Beatles and Beatle boots. And we had every record that came out was a huge, big deal. And the other part of it was my sister had a guitar and I didn't. And I was jealous. So... I asked my parents for the uh, a guitar for the next birthday or, or Christmas. And back then, it was very unusual for a kid to get an, an electric for their first guitar. Most most people get acoustic. So I think that had to, something to do with it because it was, you know, I didn't know the difference between guitars back then. But to me, I had a Beatles guitar. You know, yeah. it was very different from a Rickenbacker that they used. But um it was good enough for me. I thought it was the best and, and started lessons right away. Um, the family moved a couple times and I would end up with different teachers. I went from, you know, very basic reading, the first three frets, uh, Mel Bay books or something, Alfred books, actually. And then I ended up with a teacher that got me into right hand finger picking and folk style. Then the next guy was blues. The next guy was rock. So it was it was kind of cool jumping genres like that. And eventually I went to Musicians Institute, which was at that time, it was just a guitar school. It was the third class they ever had. Um, and that's that's what kicked my butt into the stratosphere. It was a tough school. Yeah, it's different now, I think. And most schools get that way as they get larger. I think the, the bar comes down a little bit lower of who they let in. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, I flunked the test to get in. I had to go back uh, to San Diego and study with Peter Sprague for... He was a monster bebop player for six months and it was really intense because although i had had all those lessons all those years uh i knew a bunch of tunes and techniques but i didn't know a chord scale i didn't know the difference between a major seventh chord and a dominant seventh chord so he had me learning chet baker solos and doing chord scales and inversions and you know really got me up to speed but even at that i was the only one in the class that had never done a gig before so it was all I could do to keep up. Okay, so then when was your first gig? Uh, 
it was probably within a year or two of graduating and I made $12.50 at a hippie cafe playing jazz duets with a friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a good start. Everybody has to start somewhere. Yeah, I was fine with it. I was, I was nervous as hell. You know, your first gig in front of people is pretty daunting. When was your first, for want of a better term, big break? Was that with Michael? Sure. Yeah. 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 Before that, I was uh, I was living in L.A. I moved up in 84. And at the time I got that gig, I was in like six different bands and, you know, doing the Sunset Strip thing where your original band plays once a month along with three other bands <laughs> and lugging your stuff down Hollywood Boulevard. You know, at that time, it was that's just what you did. It was no big deal. But I look back at the effort that we went to to make no money. It yeah. was it was pretty stellar. Um, yeah, I, I, it was an enormous leap to go from that to the biggest stadiums in the world. I'm sure you've talked about this many times, so forgive me for going there, but tell me about getting the gig with Michael. I understand that it was a very interesting audition. Yeah, well, you know, I, I got a call from one of his guys, and I at least asked what songs I should know, and I, I think he just pulled them out of a hat, really. Uh, he just said, well, Billie Jean, uh, I don't know if he even said beat it at that time. It was 87. You know, the hits, the top hits. And so I I just canceled everything and stayed home and worked on, I don't know, a dozen tunes or something. And when I went in a few days later, there was no band. It was just me. So, you know, trying to play Billie Jean with just guitar is just not going to happen. So, the only guidance I was given once I got there was to play some funk rhythm, because that would be 95% of what was asked of me. So I had been teaching that at GIT. At that point, I was an instructor there. So I just improvised some funk rhythm stuff, and then I did some random soloing. I I was working on my first record at that time, and I had worked out a, a two-hand tapping solo for John Coltrane's Giant Steps. So I played that, and I ended with the Beat It solo, because I had played that for a couple of years in a cover band. So I thought he might find that useful. And indeed that bought me a house. Wow. Very cool. You played the Super Bowl with them. What was that like? It was so much fun. It, it was just crazy energy. It was kind of different because it's the only show we did that did not have a stadium full of Michael fans. I mean, certainly a per certain percent were, but most of them were there for season football tickets, you know? Yeah. Um, it was the only time I ever felt that Michael was nervous because what an enormous amount of pressure. It's live. If anything goes wrong, there's no fixing it. And in fact, there's, there's one spot where he and I are at one part of the stage and it's outdoors. So the people that do the fog kind of have to gauge for wind and there's a couple seconds where you can't see either of us because we're just engulfed in this sea of fog. I thought that was entertaining, but it was it was great. It went out to a billion and a half people, eighty nations. It, it was just super cool, and I, I knew it was only going to happen one time. So there's something special about that alone. So you were alive. That's not always yeah. the case, you know. Most of the times, the tr anymore, it's the tracks. Yeah. Well. There you go. You, you got the time of a, a couple of potato chip commercials to roll the stage out to the middle of the, of the field, connect it together, toss the band on, and go. Wow. You know, it's, yeah, a lot of pressure. 
Okay, so then you went to Jeff Beck, and he was a hero of yours. So how did you get that gig? You know, I like to joke that I stalked him, um, and I kind of did, but it wasn't to get the gig. I just wanted an autograph, and I knew Terry Bozio. So from the guitar shop era, he had played with Terry, and I, when I was with Jackson, all the interviews I would do, I would have Jeff Beck t-shirts, and, and I would send that press to Terry. And I, I don't know if it ever got to Jeff, but um, when I was on the Dangerous tour, I knew we were going to England, and I made it the number one focus of that tour to invite him to a show. And eventually I did, and it was at Wembley Stadium. It was like 80,000 people. There was two opening acts that went on, and then Michael canceled the show. Oh. I, I don't know if it's sore throat or nerves or whatever, but... I was just gutted <clears throat> and I I called him after the fact and I said, you know, I don't know when or if they're going to make up the show, but can I meet you anyway? And he was very accommodating. I went down to the studio he was recording his Rockabilly record at, at the time and, you know, got my autograph, made the connection. At that time, my first record had come out, so I had a copy of that to give to him. And I also had a, a video for Flight of the Bumblebee where I was covered with 150,000 live honeybees. Wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> um, and I had a video of that from, the they were playing it on MTV in England. So I had just gotten a copy of that. And it's just like, here are my offerings. And I thought I'd never see him again. And he called me a couple months later and said, I finally listened to your record and let's do one together. And it was just so out of the blue. It was crazy. And, and in fact, it was actually five years before anything really happened. So I thought at that point he had moved on to other ideas, but... I got to do it for three years. When you recorded with them, I'm just curious about the process. Was it fast? Recording with Jeff? Um, <laughs> uh, recording is torture. Nothing's ever fast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think compared to me making my own records, it was, yeah, supersonic speed. And honestly, with a Jeff Beck record, you don't need another guitar player, right? So... I didn't do a lot. I did some guitar synth stuff. I did some guitar stuff with him. Um, but, you know, it it was interesting because sometimes I'd be there for, I don't know, six hours, and I'd have these thoughts like, why am I even here? It, it doesn't even make sense. I don't, they don't even need me, right? But there'd always, always be some sliver of wisdom that he would say during the day. I'd go, ah, that made that last six hours worthwhile. Just hearing his opinions on what he was hearing, uh, it was, I mean, God, to be a fly on the wall, that, that's something I dreamed of when I was 14, so it was pretty special. Is that primarily why you get into guitar synth when you were working with him? Yes. Yeah, he's, he's one of those guys that will jump and figure the net will appear because it's happened so many times for him. And when he hired me, he was thinking two guitars, bass, and drums. And I went to the first, I wouldn't call it a rehearsal, it was a jam. And the original band was going to be Terry Bozio and Tony Levin and the two of us. And I, I walked into the rehearsal hall uh, expecting a keyboard player, and there wasn't any. And I'm thinking, this, this ain't going to fly. I, you know, he had 30 years of records with keyboard, really lush keyboard backdrop. So I go, I... Took, he didn't say anything, but I took it upon myself to really dig deep into that so I could try to get as close to those sounds as I could. And 
it, something that was really cool about it is, um, you know, when you have those different frequencies and different textures, it makes him stand out more instead of having all these guitar frequencies trying to make it out the same, you know, yeah. <laughs> speakers. It just it just makes it more open and lush. Wow. So there must have been a technology leap that happened for you because that's it's not easy to get, especially back then to get into it. Yeah. I wouldn't have done that for anybody else. It was a slice of hell. And I had techs helping me. Um, I, I ended up with a rack full of gear. At that time, it was all outboard gear, uh, rolling 1080s for sounds. And in order to stack sounds, you had to have one unit and another unit and tell each string what two sounds you wanted to be on there. So <sighs> the programming time was ridiculous. I'd be at rehearsals hours before the band ever showed up every day. So, and it was compared to now, it was super slow. So anytime I had to do single line stuff, like there was one part in a song called Savoy that I had to play this little trumpet solo and I had to be so on top of the beat because of the delay, it was super uncomfortable. And, you know, as far as soloing, I did this one flute solo with him called Declan and I hated doing it because I sounded so stiff because I couldn't treat the guitar like a guitar. You know, if I use the tremolo bar, I, I would bend down and the bend would come back up, which you can control as a guitar player. But at that time, you really couldn't control it as a synth player. Now, the Fishman triple play wireless MIDI system just knocks that out of the park. I, instead of a giant rack full of gear and converters and everything, all you need is a like MacBook Air and a little trigger on your guitar and you're, you're good to go. And you have 10 times the amount of sounds you have access to. So I wish that had been around back then. Yeah, a different world. Well, now that we get into gear, you talked about it, so let's talk a little bit about that because what I always find interesting is the evolution of gear. You start out one way, you go another way, and then you, you end up someplace else. And I was looking at your gear page, which was significantly different than what I anticipated. So let's just go there. Talk about when you started and, and kind of what you went to over the years. Yeah, well, in the beginning, it was all about the pedals. And uh, I, I was in a cover band with a, with a friend of mine, the bass player, that we had a, a contest to see who could fill up a power strip fastest. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and that was before they had the little chains that, you know, just one power supply and then it would chain to all the other stuff. Uh, God, it was pretty Neanderthal back then. I had a, I, I, my first day was a Heath kit that my dad and I built. Wow. Yeah, it was a total piece of crap, but you know, I, I didn't know any different. It evolved. Actually, it was a little bit traumatic when I got the Michael Jackson gig because we, we had a free for all. We had all the money we needed to get any gear we thought we needed for the tour and we didn't have to pay for it till the tour was over. So at that time, that was before multi-effects in 1987. So I had a whole rack space just for chorus, another one just dedicated to um, to delay that was also a controller, MIDI controller, and another one for reverb. And that was basically my effects, although for some of the funky stuff, I did need an envelope filter pedal to cop what was on the record. Besides that, it, that was it. And it took an entire rack. And I will say that I, I also had a couple of rack mount amps. 
the other guitar player on that tour, John Clark, kind of helped me along because he was really into boogie amps. And so I ended up with one that was ridiculous compared to the gear we have now, but a very heavy uh, boogie Mark III head that was just set for clean, another one just set for a dirty channel, and, and then a ridiculously heavy power amp to power it all, plus those other rack effects. And trying to cart that around the world, they must have spent tens of thousands of dollars just from the weight of it, just craziness. And then I, I don't think I really evolved that much until I got, until that tour was over, I started working with Digitech. And that's when I got into their early multi-effects processors. And I ended up doing a lot of workshops around the world, a lot in Europe for whatever their latest multi-effects processor was. And, you know, it got to the point where 99% of my gigs involved getting on a plane. So the multi-effects were great because I knew exactly what I had. It was all pre-programmed. It was in my suitcase, if the suitcase showed up. And then the variables, of course, of whatever speaker they would provide and a power amp, which sometimes it was not good. <laughs> <laughs> And, and the, the monitors, I mean, especially when I did clinics, a lot of those stores would, you know, they, the stuff that sells best is cheap. So that's the monitors I would get. And I'm sure I have some damage in my ears from the lack of quality there. Um, and, and then I did a lot of experimenting when I was with Jeff Beck because, ah, you know, now I'm with the god of tone. And that's, it's really difficult. Every time I would come home, I would work out something new and get new effects and new this and that and try different amps. And then I'd go, okay, this is sounding really good. And then I'd fly to London and play with them and go, uh, because mm. no. <laughs> there's just no match in that tone. You know, it's, it's, we all know that the tone is in the hands, right? Yeah. And music industry depends on us to keep buying new gear because we're hoping the tone is there. And, and I will say that, he had surround sound for himself. He was coming out of the side fills. He had monitors in the front. Plus, he had slaves off his marshals. So he had uh, Celestians coming at him from the front as well. And it, the tone is just glorious anyway. But when you're surrounded by that, and then my tone was it was coming out of the monitors, but it, you know, there's just no way to compete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so now we come up to the present day. It's different. Yeah. Thankfully, um, as I age, everything is getting lighter. And I have had hernia surgery from lifting all those marshals all those years <laughs> and different heavy amps. Now I'm using the new technology, um, Blue Guitar, BLU Guitar Company, uh, developed by Thomas Blug, who's uh, an engineer, a wonderful guitar player as well, that worked for Hughes and Kettner for 28, 29 years. So, I knew him as a player and I went to his place one day and he plugged me into his new amp, which is less than three pounds. It's analog and it's got four channels and is MIDI capable. And I just go, it sounded so good. I was used to that digital sound where you really can't roll back and clean up the guitar with the volume. And I hadn't used analog for quite a while and all of a sudden here it is. I can put it in my carry-on and I just go, when can I have one? You know, and it, it was just torture waiting for it. I had other trips where I'd have all this heavy crap in my luggage. And so that's what I'm using now. I'm, I'm doing the four cable method. <clears throat> so 
I, I have two systems. If Do you want me to get this nerdy? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Love it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. The only difference between the two systems I have, I have the same amp for both. I'm doing four cable method for both. One is... Now, when, you, when you say four uh, cable method, describe that. Okay. Okay. What, what that does, it, it, it uses the effects loop in the amp, and it allows you to choose which effects are before the preamp and which effects are between the preamp and the power amp. So like time-based effects like delay and reverb sound best when they're between the preamp and the power amp. As opposed to with pedals, everything generally is before the preamp and you can't control that. So um, I'm using what is old now. Uh, they stopped making it, but a Digitech RP-1000 that's a multi-effects unit. And I used to use the amp models in there, but I only use it for effects now. And the technology has gone way beyond that. So my second setup is the exact same thing, except I have a Line 6 HX Stomp that is, it just gives you so many more options and is way more high tech. Right now, with my Digitech system, if I want to change the amp channel, I have to step on the amp. It's, it's a pedal that's on the floor. And then I have to step on my preset. And it's, it's very fussy to have to do that. With the newer system, I step on one button and everything changes. Mm, yeah. And I like to use a lot of effects. Like I want to go into the bridge and I want this sound. And then the, the next verse is this sound. So I want to step on one thing immediately. The only thing is I have sounds in the Digitech that I cannot recreate in the, um, in the HX stomp. So I'm stuck between two systems right now. Tell me about your string dampener. That, oh boy, I've been using some form of string damper since 1979. And I got into it because I got into tapping. And I got into that because of a fellow classmate that got into it. Um, we used to get a seminar once a month from, uh, you know, this was LA. So we had access to people like Larry Carlton, uh, Lee Rittenauer, Pat Matheny, people that would fly through on tour, we'd, we'd get this hour seminar with monster players. And one month it was Emmett Chapman who invented the Chapman stick. Yeah. And you know, th th at that time it was a class of 60 and 59 of us were looking at this going, yeah, it's really cool, but we're trying to get these six strings down in this tuning. But it planted a seed in Steve Lynch's head. And this is before Van Halen got big of, you know, the, the stick, there's no picking on the stick. It's all tapped with both hands. Five bass strings, five melody strings. And it planted a seed in Steve Lynch's head to, to explore that. And I heard what he was doing and it just blew my mind. I, I just, I got to have that. And the, the year was so intense with curriculum, I didn't get into it until we graduated. But as soon as we did, I wrote to him and he sent me a cassette of things he was working on which I tried to learn and was having trouble with. So at that point I'm back in San Diego and I drive up to LA for a lesson and that's all I needed that I understood what was going on. And I just started exploring from there, but I found a need for a damper because when you have two hands on the board, that are busy doing things. You can't dampen the strings. Yeah. So if you have a distorted sound, it, it can get real ugly, real fast. So the, the first, well, the first one was a sock. I just tied a sock around the first fret, you know? And then I saw an ad in 
the classifieds in Guitar World magazine where a guy was selling a thing called the Kleenex string damper, clean with a K. So I bought several of those and I started to modify them immediately because they, they had um, foam rubber that went against the strings and you would hear the clicking. It, it, it just wasn't cool. So I, I put uh, piano string damper material and you could never buy them in stores. They've never been in stores. So eventually I befriended a Chinaman on one of my trips to China and had a bunch made. I, I had a thousand made up and I'm almost out of them now. Wow. That's very cool. I didn't realize that in order to tap well, you had to do that. Well, yeah, it, it depends how you tap, actually. Because, like, Van Halen didn't use a string damper, but he would tend to tap on one string at a time, and that allowed the rest of his hand to dampen the rest of the strings. Uh, but I, the way I tap is going across the strings. Okay, I get it. Tell me about the uh, Guitar Cloud Symposium. Yeah, that... I, I would say the first two months of lockdown, I pretty much went off in a corner and sucked my thumb. And I thought, you know, all my tours are canceled. How am I going to pay for my house? Like like millions of others, uh, especially the whole touring community, like, what do we do now? Most of us don't have savings to tide us over for a year or more. And it, it was just super depressing. I I just didn't know what to do. You know, I could do Skype lessons here and there. I, that was before I even heard of Zoom. And, but that's not going to pay the mortgage, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. unless, unless it's, and I didn't love doing that anyway. So I just came up with the idea one day. I had done a, a touring seminar seven, eight years ago. I had a motorhome. I went across the country. I played at almost every Sam Ash store in America with a buddy of mine. And we would do sponsored clinics one day and then do this seminar the next day. And it was all these things that I wanted students to know that I would consistently find that they didn't know when I would do Skype lessons, apps, things that would just make music a lot easier for people. And that went okay. And then I got into touring with various acts. And then it, it occurred to me, let's fire it up again, but let's make it virtual and add more people. And so I called, you know, I, I didn't, set out to say this is going to be a women's school but i had toured with the women that i called and i knew that they're great players and workhorses and would get their stuff together vicky genfan i toured with her several times in america and in the czech republic and i had just done a tour before lockdown with neely brosh and gretchen men and they were fired up to go out and do some more and i knew that they all taught they all recorded and they all had a lot of touring experience. So with those three things, I felt confident about putting on this seminar. And when I did my seminar years earlier, I set out to do it like a series of TED Talks where every subject was gonna be 20 minutes. You know, whatever you wanna talk about, it's gonna be condensed to a fine reduction sauce. This is the main thing. And brain, brain science shows that people start the eyes roll back in their head after 20 minutes anyway. Yeah. So let's, you know, like ginger for sushi, we're going to have a little break and then we're going to do this next one and next one. So it was so much work to put together, but everybody came through. I said, six subjects of things you want to teach that you're the most passionate about. And I, we all started with a, a list of 10 and then we would have these Zoom meetings and kind of pare down who's going to do what. 
we all wanted to do tapping. <laughs> and in the end, Neely and I both did it, and it was very different approaches. So it, it wasn't any overlap at all. Um, and I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I thought, okay, these people have a lot of followers, you know, 100, 200,000 on Instagram or whatever. And I thought, okay, they have this reach. That's how we're going to advertise with no money, social media. And we started doing Facebook lives and Instagram lives and getting the word out. And we got, I don't know, 20, 25 people the first time. And it's one thing I thought it was going to be was we have 24 modules of content and we have PDFs and videos that you can look at after the fact. We're, we're not going to have people take the recordings because it's Zoom quality for one thing. And some of the people just didn't want to let people have access to that for whatever reason. And, and I just came up with this model, which is partly from having been a student at GIT and partly because I've done thousands of clinics of having an orientation on Friday night. Let's learn who's coming here. It's open to the entire world. I wanted to start it at 9 a.m., which is pretty brutal Pacific time, so that people in Europe and UK could join us. And in fact, I've had people from New Zealand join us. It's four o'clock in the morning their time. I had somebody from Zimbabwe join us, mm. which, you know, is, I don't even know what time zone that is. So we would, each teacher would do three 20 minute segments. So that's an hour. And then there's a half hour Q&A period before the next person comes along. Lunch break in the middle of the day on the Saturday and Sunday. Um, and then the Friday, this is something I didn't anticipate either, that in a pandemic that we would get any sponsor help at all. I, I thought people would, everybody was suffering. But in fact, it's a combination of the companies can't do the NAM show, so they still have their advertising budget and they need to get influencers out there. I ended up with 15 sponsors. Wow. And that wow. helped me pay. They're not all cash sponsors, but it helped me not only pay for all the expenses, but there's an amazing amount of giveaways. You know, people pay for this weekend and end up with a guitar on top of it or an amp or amp simulator, straps, strings, and most people get multiple things as a gift. So that turned into a, um, a Monday night blowout party where <clears throat> we announce who's winning what, and it's a final Q&A. And then I had the idea of just like when I was at GIT and we had these special guests come, I know all these people. I called Andy Timmons. I toured with him. So he was a special guest one time. Scott Henderson was another. Then I had a feeling Steve Vai would do it. I mean, that's it doesn't get bigger than that. He stayed with us over two hours and probably would have gone on three. <laughs> and it was crazy. Uh, we just had Dweezil Zappa and we're having Steve Lukather in April. So that's the icing on the cake. <clears throat> people from... You know, a woman from Zimbabwe gets to hang out with Steve Vai for a couple hours yeah. as a bonus to all this other stuff. So um, it, it started as the 24 modules, and I've been doing a survey as well, and some of the people wanted us to go deeper. So now instead of 24 20-minute modules, we're doing 16 30-minute modules, starting to bring in new teachers as well to have some fresh faces every time. And the one thing, I'm circling back around from five minutes ago, the one thing I didn't anticipate, I thought, okay, we have all this content and we get 50 new people every month. Well, the alumni keep coming back like every single time. 
because it's turned into a community yeah. where there's a there's a private Facebook members group where people are very active posting their playing or their newest gear or whatever. And I also offer a, a free Zoom alumni chat. I wanted it to be for the students to get to know each other. At this point, I still need to be there moderating to, to keep the conversation rolling. But it's really turned into this community. And in fact, a couple of days ago, I put together a video from the last orientation that turned into a testimonial because there's a lot of people that have been to every single one of them. And basically, I want to get to know the new people, what level they're at, what music they're into kind of thing. But we have time to roll through everybody and catch up on what projects the alumni have done. And I just put that together, this compilation, and it being able to gather like this means so much to people. I mean, part part of it, I think, is people are lonely in the pandemic, right? They can't get together with their bros. And, and there was a woman that said, you know, she's she's starting to play at 40. She's really into it. And none of her friends play guitar or understand why she wants to do it. But she can come to our community and we speak her language. So she's a lifer. You know, it's that that kind of stuff is unexpected and very heartwarming and one of the reasons that we stay fired up because we know we're making a difference in people's lives. That's really awesome, Jennifer. It's not easy to do something like that, and it's not easy to sustain something like that. So congratulations for doing both. Yeah, well, (laughs) yeah, you ain't kidding. I I am not a business head. And, you know, I thought, okay, this one has 100,000 followers. We'll, We'll get at least 100 people signing up. And I mean, in part because people are worried about money during a pandemic, and in part because I don't have a clue about marketing. Thankfully, because the sponsors have stepped up, I'm able to hire pro marketers now. And it's just ramping up at a different level just now after seven months. So I have high hopes that it will keep going and the, you know, the word will get out and people will spend more than 17 seconds on the website. (laughs) (laughs) This is the age of short attention span theater. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I get that. I understand completely. Last question. What's the best piece of business advice that you received from somebody over the years, or maybe you learned yourself? Um, The first thing that comes to mind is I had been doing what my friend, I have a friend that's a marketer um, and is volunteering a, a lot of time in this because she's a musician too, and she gets a lot out of the connection as well. And I, you know, I was feeling guilty and berating myself that I wasn't taking courses in Facebook marketing because I had all this other stuff on my plate. Plus, I had zero interest. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and her best advice was get somebody that's an expert instead of trying to be a semi-expert at something you know nothing about. And so now I got a guy that's, he's making the graphics look a lot better. He, he's doing the the invitations as, as soon as there's a new thing for sale. He's helping with videos. He, he's actually going way beyond what I thought he would do. But it takes a load of pressure off from what my friend called panic posting. Hmm. I would wake up and go, oh, God, there's not enough students, and i got to pay these people. Ah, let's put graphics together, and maybe they'll like this. Maybe I'll play this and just throw it out there. So that, that's the best piece of advice so far. You can find out more about Jennifer at jenniferbatten.com. 
That's Jennifer, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R, Batten, B-A-T-T-E-N.com. You can also find out about Guitar Cloud Symposium at GuitarCloudSymposium.com. Guitar, Cloud, and then Symposium, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Yeah.